Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. When we're analyzing a deal, typically as passive investors, I've already vetted the sponsor and I'm confident the sponsor at least knows what he or she is doing. So when they send me a deal, I do my own analysis. I'm not digging in nearly as deep as they are. So I think it would be the same for the insurance. I assume they have insurance because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get a loan. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Pass Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm excited today to have Doug Levi with us. He's the Chief Encouragement Officer at Strategic Insurance Services. He works in all areas of risk management and insurance, and he's here today to talk about how passive investors should be evaluating a potential deal from the insurance side of things. So this is a new topic for us, and we haven't really concentrated on this much, but this is going to be very eye-opening to learn how we should be looking at insurance as investors. Doug, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, happy to be here and great to be here with all the other investors on the podcast. Excellent. So the way we usually start the podcast is just to find your journey. How did you get to get into insurance? And then how did you get involved with kind of real estate investors as well? So if you can tell your journey, that, that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I joke like everybody, I wanted to be an insurance agent when I grew up. It was like either baseball player, basketball player, movie star, or insurance agent, right? So that was a joke for anyone not laughing. That was not my goal as a kid. But no, I say God has a plan for your life, even if you don't realize it. And I went to school, I double majored in economics and management. I actually thought I wanted to go investment banking route, but decided I didn't want to work 80 hours a week and be in Wall Street and all that. But I was doing financial services, working in that area up in Philadelphia, moved down here to Florida. And I'll condense a very long story quickly. Thought I came out of a really bad interview to be a financial advisor with Wells Fargo. Thought I bombed the interview. And I normally do pretty good in interviews. And I'm 23, pretty motivated, pretty fired up. And I start handing out my resume in Tampa. I'm in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. And so I just go up and down the main boulevard where the interview was and started handing out my resume. And one of them was at a state farm office. I really thought about 
property and casualty insurance or anything like that. But I go in there, hand my resume and man, I really connected with the area manager and ultimately got offered the job from Wells Fargo, by the way, to be that financial advisor, but landed then with State Farm. So I spent about two years at State Farm, really cut my teeth on the property and casualty side. And then I started my agency strategic insurance services in 2006. So started my agency in 2006. Today, we're in all 50 states. We serve clients, about 6,000 clients, over 20 million of enforced premium and really have a great niche in the real estate space. So how I got in, obviously, and I tell real estate investors this all the time, it's there's two parts of every transaction that, that real estate investors need to deal with, and that's taxes and insurance. One, you can at least do something about. Some levers you can pull with insurance, right? Taxes is pretty fixed. I really found it great working with real estate investors at a variety of levels. That could be anything from people that own commercial strip centers, it can be habitational apartment complexes, it can be warehouses, down to we have clients that have 30 or 40 single family homes that we have on a schedule. And certainly it was a niche for me that I really enjoyed. And then I've always been interested in real estate, right? So I've always been interested just in real estate myself and it's worked well for our agency here. That's great. It's, it's interesting. I started my career in insurance as a reinsurance underwriter in Philadelphia. So we have a little bit of that in common, but it's funny for a guy like me who was in insurance for almost 12 years to start my career. Now that I'm a real estate investor, I'm embarrassed to say I have never once thought about insurance when thinking about the real estate syndication. So this is going to be great to learn what I should have been asking. And so my first question, why should I ask my syndicator about the insurance plan when I'm looking at a deal and what should I be looking for? Yeah, we're right after Hurricane Ian and we're here in Florida. Hurricane Ian arguably going to be probably the third largest storm to ever hit the US. I tell people when insurance works well, it literally helps put you back where you were. And when insurance doesn't work well, if you've ever been in a scenario where you've had a bad claim, it can be one of the most heart-wrenching, challenging, frustrating things. So I would say, I think the takeaway to the passive investor out there, while you are passive, you've got skin in the game. You're putting your hard-earned money, your dollars to work, and then you're transferring that to a syndicator to, to say, okay, you run it, you figure it out. But at the end of the day, if there's a claim, if there's a large loss, ultimately is going to impact the entire group. And to me, again, it's one of those things that not a lot of people spend time necessarily thinking about. It's probably a check on a checklist for both the local investor who's maybe just doing flips or buying homes and holding. And even I would argue, even the syndicator, obviously, depending on the size of the syndication, may get more sophisticated and have a controller or CFO that's really analyzing and going deep. But I still see a lot of times where that's just not the case. It's the last minute, hey, this is just something we got to check off the closing list. I think from a risk perspective, it's just a a really good idea to understand how is the syndication protected? What do they have in place so that if the big claim comes, they're prepared? And depending on how things are structured, what, could there be a capital call if things weren't properly in place and the, the syndication looking to the investors for more money to do repairs on the buildings? And again, I'm sure there's all sorts of flavors of how things are set up, but I think that's the takeaway is that you got some skin in the game. You should really understand what you've got and how it works. And what questions should you ask? Because when we're analyzing a deal, typically as passive investors, I've already vetted the sponsor and I'm confident the sponsor at least knows what he or she is doing. So when they send me a deal, I do my own analysis. I'm not digging in nearly as deep as they are. So I think it would be the same for the insurance. They assume they have insurance because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get a loan. So that's number one. But that's as far as I've gone into it. And so what questions do I need to be asking in order to 
make sure that I am not digging too deep, but making sure that they understand, yep, we're covered. We have all the parts we need. I would certainly at the very least want to, I would ask and say, I'd like to see a copy of the insurance that we have in force right now. That should be something that a syndicator could show pretty easy. Is it a name you've ever heard of? Is it a name you recognize from a carrier perspective? And then listen, again, there's all sorts of investors out there and different personality temperaments and even the passive investor, maybe people that are more analytical that really want to understand. I think one of the biggest ones, and I say this very practically speaking, I realize the focus of the group is again on the passive investment side. We already established at the end of the day that if there is a claim or something serious goes wrong, the insurance is there to protect, protect that syndication, protect that group. And what we're seeing a lot of right now, Jim, is inflation at all-time highs. Like You don't have to go far to look for that news of inflation, construction costs, labor costs, really at all-time highs, or at least 40, 50-year highs. That's having a significant impact on replacement costs for insurance coverage. And so what I do see at times is you can have a policy, depending on the setup, where maybe it just renews every, if it has not been reviewed or not being actively reviewed or actively managed, and depending on the level of sophistication that the insurance agent or risk management advisor has and systems in place that they do proactively look at it, you may have a syndication that you're invested in that's not insured properly. And again, this just goes to pulling the thread from the sleeve, if you will, of if we're not insured properly and there's a fire and the building burns to the ground, where does that money come from? And will the syndication come back and ask me for that? Again, that's something that's more of a contractual, legal requirement that kind of gets into a different area. But I think those would be a couple of the big ones. I would certainly want to ask for copies and see the current insurance structures that are in place. And then depending on the size of the portfolio and what's there, I would want to understand a little bit about the coverage that they have on each building. I'd want to understand that and make sure that does it at least pass the sniff test. You You can pretty easily do a price per square foot. And I would say... Again, and I realize that certainly trends are going to vary depending on the area that's invested in. It's going to cost more if I'm in New York City than in Tampa, Florida, and it's going to cost more in Tampa, Florida than maybe if I'm in Kansas or something. But I would say in general, it was a very rough rule of thumb, anywhere from at least $150 to $200 a square foot for rebuild is really becoming the norm now for commercial structures, for residential structures. Again, obviously wide range that it can go there, but That's probably an easy rule of thumb that someone could at least look at and say, okay, these are the assets that I'm investing in passively. Roughly, how big is the square footage? How much coverage is there? And on a price per square foot replacements, are we at least at 150 to 200 a square foot? If you're a lot less than that, there'd be, to me, pause for concern. Okay. And then in our discussions before we got on the podcast, you gave me some ideas of things that we should be asking the operator. And so I want to through some of and understand why those are things we should ask and also define some terms. And the first one is coinsurance. And did say I was an insurance guy from way back. I was on the liability side. So this coinsurance thing has always been confusing to me because it's more of a property side kind of deal. And I'm not sure I understand it. So can you talk about what is coinsurance? How is it different from a deductible? And then we'll get into why you should be asking about that. Yeah. And here's the other thing I would imagine within the group, even if people are doing passive investments, perhaps at the very least, they probably have their own homeowner's insurance. Maybe they have other real estate holdings or anything like that. It's very high level and simply coinsurance is a term that's used on property insurance. Almost all policies have coinsurance clauses. And I tell people and joke with about this, that the insurance policies aren't 40 or 50 pages long for everything that's covered. There's terms and conditions that refines coverage, adds, or takes away. Most policies have an 80% coinsurance clause, which says 
If my building really costs a million dollars to rebuild, let's just assume that the true cost of rebuild is a million dollars. Like the building we go out in today's market, we get bids from three general contractors to build a like kind and quality square footage, all that. And it's a million bucks. All three of them say it's a million bucks. If I've got an 80% coinsurance clause that says I need to be insured at least $800,000, that's 80% to value. If I drop below that, the insurance company applies a penalty in the event of a claim. It can be pretty significant. And this, again, goes into this whole thought of why is I a passive income investor? Should I even care about what insurance my syndication has? And talking about inflation and rising costs and the coverage that the syndication has, because again, these numbers can turn pretty quickly. Basically, if you're underinsured, if you fall below that 80%, again, in the event of a claim, you'll get penalized and you will not get what you think you're going to get. And so that's, again, and I could go on in that and run through an example, maybe probably a little outside of the scope of this, but I think very simply saying it's a part of almost all property policies. There are times where it's waived. So I will put that out there. There are certain policies and forms where it's waived, which if you can have that's preferred as a syndicator or investor, if you can have that's preferred. But a lot of times there is a clause on there. It normally is 80%. And again, it can be certainly a messy thing in the event of a claim if you're underinsured. So the question I ask then to the operator is, do you have a coinsurance clause and is it at least 80%? Yeah, 100%, I think is, do we have a coinsurance clause on our insurance? And again, what's our insurance to value? That's, if we really also drill down, and this is something that any passive income investor could ask their syndicator or operator and their operator could very easily go to an insurance agent like myself, whoever they're working with, and say, I want an updated replacement cost estimate. And a replacement cost estimate is a tool that we use as agents where you fill in square footage, your bill, finishes, whatever the characteristics of the building are. And these are done by engineering companies to give us an analysis of what what does it cost to rebuild. So it could even be, hey, when's the last time we've run a replacement cost estimate on our buildings to make sure we're properly insured? If we just keep it bone simple and say, we're trying to make sure that arguably our biggest assets as the syndication at least, right? not necessarily what other people may have personally, that our biggest assets are properly insured. That's really what this comes down to. That makes sense. And then you mentioned you want to make sure that the insurance program is reviewed by multiple brokers. So can you talk about how often they should do that? Yeah, I think that's big, right? Like I've been in the business 19 years. I've got clients that have been with me for years. Certainly any insurance agency wants that, but there's no doubt that as you become a more sophisticated investor, look, I think depending on the level of service that these syndicator is getting and the sort of the expertise maybe that the agency has, I would certainly say at least every other year, in my opinion, probably shop and look to bring somebody else to the table and at least you know, frankly keep people like myself honest, if you will. I, I don't want to say honest, but not making sure that people aren't asleep at the wheel. Like on our team, we have a very proactive process with our communication with our clients. We do 18 to 21 touch points a year. We have a whole renewal review process. We go to market and bid each year over 20 insurance carriers, depending on the size of the risk. So we've got, I'd like to think a pretty good system in place, but certainly you can hear of the, the joke of the insurance agent who's maybe out golfing and not, not really rolling up the sleeves like they used to. So I think that's just good business practice that any probably recurring costs that are significant in nature that could be bitter shop probably every other year at the very least. And then when you're having that conversation, should you also say, talk to the broker that you have currently and ask them to shop to multiple different insurance companies? Because you're not just talking about the broker shopping, you're talking about You'd also want the broker to go and make sure that the insurance company you're using is the correct one and has the best value based on the insurance that you need and the cost that, it, that it's going to take. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And the flip side is the longer you're with a carrier, 
Okay, this is probably in general normally the better pricing, especially if claims have been pretty good or pretty minimal. You may hear, and again, I mentioned I started my career with State Farm. You may maybe again, and maybe it's a smaller apartment complex or something. I don't know. And State Farm's not huge in commercial, but perhaps the policy's been with State Farm for 20 years. It's a good company, and maybe that's the best price and the best place for it. I just think the idea though that sometimes that's not always the case, and to make sure that you're doing you're at least encouraging the operators to do that or ask those questions of what is our strategy? Like how often do we go and bid? How often do we ask for another broker to come in and take a look at what we've got. And no doubt the commercial insurance market is, is traditionally, I don't want to say, maybe I should say dominated. Independent agents, I think, control over 85% of the marketplace. It's unusual that like an Allstate or a State Farm or a farmer's insurance are going to be big in commercial. It's more guys like myself that are independent. Then you get in the case where not all independents have access to the same markets. So even if you've been with an independent for a while, maybe there's somebody who's got other markets or other programs that would be really beneficial to the syndication. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. One of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, is currently accepting accredited investors into their Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2. Why should you invest in multifamily now? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's turmoil around the world, and we are in a very high inflationary environment. Naturally, that's a lot to digest, and it's on a lot of people's minds as to what this means for multifamily or how to interpret this kind of data and reasons to consider when deciding to invest. Ashcroft Capital has compiled a white paper of five reasons to consider investing in multifamily in 2022. To read it and to learn more about investing in multifamily real estate with Ashcroft's AVAF2, visit ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. You mentioned you want to make sure that the insurance program is reviewed by multiple brokers. So can you talk about how often they should do that? Yeah, I think that's big, right? Like I've been in the business 19 years. I've got clients that have been with me for years. Certainly any insurance agency wants that, but there's no doubt that as you become a more sophisticated investor, look, I think depending on the level of service that these syndicator is getting and the sort of the expertise maybe that the agency has, I would certainly say at least every other year in my opinion, probably shop and look to bring somebody else to the table and at least keep people, you know, frankly, keep people like myself honest, if you will. I, I don't want to say honest, but not making sure that people aren't asleep at the wheel. Like on our team, we have a very proactive process with our communication with our clients. We do 18 to 21 touch points a year. We have a whole renewal review process. We go to market and bid each year over 20 insurance carriers, depending on the size of the risk. So we've got I'd like to think a pretty good system in place, but certainly you can hear of the, the joke of the insurance agent who's maybe out golfing and not, not really rolling up the sleeves like they used to. So I think that's just good 
business practice that any probably recurring costs that are significant in nature that could be bid or shop probably every other year at the very least. And then when you're having that conversation, should you also say, talk to the broker that you have currently and ask them to shop to multiple different insurance companies? Because you're not just talking about the broker shopping, you're talking about You'd also want the broker to go and make sure that the insurance company you're using is the correct one and has the best value based on the insurance that you need and the cost that that it's going to take. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And the flip side is the longer you're with a carrier, okay, this is probably in general, normally the better pricing, especially if claims have been pretty good or pretty minimal, you may hear, and again, I mentioned I started my career with State Farm, you may maybe... Again, and maybe it's a smaller apartment complex or something. I don't know. And State Farm's not huge in commercial, but perhaps the policy's been with State Farm for 20 years. It's a good company, and maybe that's the best price and the best place for it. I just think the idea, though, that sometimes that's not always the case, and to make sure that you're doing, you're at least encouraging the operators to do that or ask those questions of what is our strategy? Like, how often do we go and bid? How often do we ask for another? broker to come in and take a look at what we've got. And no doubt the commercial insurance market is, is traditionally, I don't want to say, maybe I should say dominated. Independent agents, I think, control over 85% of the marketplace. It's unusual that like an Allstate or a state farm or a farmer's insurance are going to be big in commercial. It's more guys like myself that are independent. Then you get in the case where not all independents have access to the same markets. So even if you've been with an independent for a while, maybe there's somebody who's got other markets or other programs that would be really beneficial to the syndication. Okay. And then if you are talking to the operator and asking about their insurance, I know that a lot of insurance companies or or I guess brokers, I'm not sure which maybe both offer proactive services to help guys the risk at the property. Should we be asking about what those are and have they had those conversations, lost control and that kind of thing? I think those are big. I think those are the things, the more that you can do to mitigate risk upfront. And it could be as simple as a lot of properties do get inspected by the insurance company. Anything that can be done to say mitigate, maybe there's a tree too close to a building, maybe the sidewalk needs to be repaired, some maintenance things that could lead to liability issues. I know you said back in the day, you're a liability guy and you have somebody slip and fall and they break their neck or something. It could be a huge claim. So much of what we've talked about has been focused on property so far. The liability is a big area. And certainly, and I'll even say this, we had one of our carriers, we had Liberty Mutual in a team meeting today. And we're just talking about, especially here in Florida, the litigious nature that we're seeing and the increase in the severity and size of the claims. So in other words, the claims that typically if there is a slip and fall and we compare it like 10 or 20 years ago, what would the payout have been or would the claim have been adjusted compared to today? The numbers are way up. So anything that you can get services or from doing some risk management. And again, that may be outside of an insurance agent or broker that very well could be tied to it depending on the agent or broker. But to me, those are things that I would certainly be asking my operator and saying, hey, what are we doing to be proactive to make sure that we're minimizing risks to keep our claims down, to keep us profitable, to keep our insurance costs down and to make sure that kind of steadying the ship there. And you mentioned liability. I like to bring up umbrella insurance. First of all, can you Tell us what umbrella insurance is and then what level of umbrella insurance should a a large multifamily property have? Great question. So a couple schools of thought here, right? If we just go and we talk about level of umbrella coverage, I've heard personal injury attorneys talk on this and sort of a net worth. If we're, again, and I'm going to use the personal analogy of a personal liability umbrella just for sake of of ease right here. But let's say a person has a net worth of $5 million. You can make the case they probably need a $5 million umbrella. You could do the same play with the real estate asset or portfolio. Now I'm well aware of, okay, we've got a hundred million real estate portfolio. You probably don't need a hundred million dollar umbrella. I'm aware of that, but 
What I would say, just speaking on is, I still see lots of cases where there's no umbrella at all, where it's just a general liability policy. And for those that aren't aware or don't know, an umbrella is basically just an extra layer of protection that goes above and beyond an underlying liability policy. Now, if it's a portfolio and each underlying multifamily unit or multifamily location has 1 million, 2 million liability, and let's say there's five locations, you could do a 5 or $10 million umbrella and have that layer over the entire portfolio. And the idea is that, let's say, God forbid, there's a fire, someone dies, and there's multiple people that also got injured, and the claim is going to be way in excess of a million dollars. The million dollar would trigger and pay out from the underlying policy, and then that umbrella would drop down and kick in whatever limits were there. And that's really, to me, incredibly important protection for the syndication and then you as the passive investor. Because again, the challenge with liability in general, or if we look at it in a different way, With property, even with larger property, frankly, it's a fixed cost, a relatively fixed cost. Now, it may be a big number, but it's pretty easy to pin the cost. When you have, say, somebody got very hurt in a fire or died in a fire, now we're getting into pain and suffering and punitive damages and court costs and court fees and all that. And it's not as easy of a, hey, what is that number? And they can be quite large. I think the very simple takeaway to the passive investor is like, oh, wow, this is actually makes a little bit of sense. And yeah, maybe I should email or call my operator or my syndicator or whatever is, hey, do we have a liability umbrella? Is there an umbrella in force? If so, like how much coverage do we have? And again, if it's, we've got a hundred million dollar portfolio and we only have a million dollar umbrella, you're probably well underinsured. Now, when I insure some fairly large clients in different areas and fields, 10, 15, 20 million, you're probably starting to max out on the umbrella at that point. But certainly that one to $5 million umbrella range, depending on the size of the portfolio, I think is a no-brainer. As it gets bigger, probably up to $10 million, maybe up to $15 million. So when we're investing in these syndications, the operator might have, they might own 20 properties, but each one is its own LLC. So it's its own company, basically. So does each operator have to get insurance on each property and then the umbrella only covers that property? Or could they get an umbrella that covers all of their properties, a master policy type thing? Is that possible? And is that part of the conversation? Yeah. Jim, I've seen so many flavors over the years, right? Traditionally, insurance companies will say, if there's common ownership being the key, they normally will allow multiple LLCs to be put together, if you will, and then an umbrella over that. Where it gets complicated is if it's not, the entities don't have common ownership. Let's say it's like a father and son, right? And the father and son, they own 10 different LLCs, but they're the only owners of all 10. Inherently, the structure and what probably your your clients are in and your people in left field investors is probably a little more complex than that. Multiple entities and general partners, limited partners, all that. Again, it all depends. Devil's in the details on the structure and all that. But traditionally, they're going to look for common ownership. If there's common ownership, normally you can do that on top of it. If not, yeah, you would have to go kind of policy by policy and put a little umbrella over each one. Again, depending on the value, depending on the how much revenue is being generated. One of the other things, Jim, we didn't really talk on, and I do think this is a really important one, and it is business income. If you think about this very simply, what are you buying when you're investing in real estate like this? You're buying cash flow. You're buying that monthly recurring revenue. And talking to an insurance guy, I know all about monthly recurring revenue, right? You're buying that cash flow. Let's say there is a big claim. Is there sufficient business income to support the asset? So what does that mean? Let's keep it, try and keep the numbers simple. Let's say I've got an apartment complex and it generates $10,000 of revenue a month. Smaller complex generates 10 grand a month, $120,000 for the year. Apartment complex, there's a fire. Nobody got hurt. Take the liability off the table. Nobody got hurt, but those people can't live there anymore. They're not going to keep paying rent, but- 
the syndicator may still have a mortgage that has to get paid. The mortgage doesn't stop. There's certain bills that still have to go, right? Electric, et cetera. So the business income portion of a property policy would step in and pay on a monthly basis as if you were still getting those rents. Again, super important area, depending on the philosophy of the operator, all of that, and real estate investors are certainly across the board. But a lot of times they want to skinny down things as much as possible. They're trying to get the NOI up. They're trying to make things as attractive as possible. And I tell a lot of these real estate guys, you're cutting too far. Don't cut into the bone. So again, a very simple takeaway would be as you're kind of looking or you're asking some robbers, hey, do we have business income coverage? Or again, to really put it specifically for the real estate world, do we have loss of rents? Okay, that's a big one. And I see a lot of real estate guys that skip that. They just don't do it. Or maybe they don't have sufficient. Maybe the rents are 500000 for the year and they're like, we're only going to do 100000 of loss of income. And nobody ever says today's the day that my house burns to the ground, my real estate portfolio burns to the ground, the big one happens, we have the big claim, all that. No, no, nobody thinks like that. But the whole point of insurance is you've got to be prepared when that day comes. So I think that's another takeaway that I would certainly encourage the left field crew on. Yeah, that's great stuff. And so you were talking about fire, slip and falls, things like that. What are the typical claims that you see on the liability side? Because as you said, I think the the property part is generally pretty easy to figure out. Yeah, that's covered. We're good to go. But when you have a million dollar general liability policy, you're trying to figure out how much umbrella they need. What are the type of claims we're talking about. So a fire happens and someone gets injured, you have a slip and fall. What else are we thinking about? Yeah, those are probably the biggest ones. I've got a client that we insure, gosh, we insure probably close to a million square feet of real estate throughout the Midwest. And they've got a variety of shopping centers and we get multiple slip and fall claims. It's just, you get the volume of people coming and going. And frankly, it's easy to sue. It's easier shouldn't say that. Whether it's easy to sue or not, it's easier to call a personal injury attorney and say, hey, I slipped and fell and I got hurt. And that also dovetails or ties into sort of what's the risk management strategy? What are we doing to, right? Now, obviously I'm in Florida. This client of mine's in, in the Midwest. They've got assets in Ohio and other areas. Snow removal, that's a big one. What's the strategy there? Do we have a really good snow removal program and making sure that we're keeping the sidewalks very clean and we've got guys out, maintenance crew right away and that, that type of thing, insulting the sidewalks and all the stuff that I don't miss from Philadelphia. But yeah, I would certainly say slip and fall. I think when you look up is probably going to be one of the top ones in terms of the liability, probably the most common one you would see out there. And yeah, we've had clients, again, I've been in business 19 years. I've seen all sorts of pretty challenging things. Yeah. And what about the, like some of these syndications, they have their own property management team or they have people on staff. So they, I would assume they would need workers comp insurance. Is that something that we should be asking about? Yes, that was just another area. So if we try and broaden this a little bit and we say, hey, and again, someone like myself, I really consider a risk management advisor. I'm not just trying to sell insurance, I'm trying to through the risk with the client and say, hey, how can we come up with strategies and what do we need to put in place to make sure that we're minimizing risk, we're keeping costs down overall. Depending on the structure, the operator may just outsource it to a property management company and then the risk is transferred to the property management company. Now, Again, you could kind of, like I said, pulling the string from the shirt, if you will, you could certainly want the operator to say, does the property management company have liability? And if they named us as an additional insured so that if the big one happens, we don't get pulled into the claim. But there's certainly maybe times where companies are big enough, they have their own team, right? They have their own staff. So then I would say things like, okay, obviously workers comp, depending on the state and regulations, 
You get somebody that gets hurt on the job, they need workers comp. I'll tell you a big one, Jim. And look, I'm a small business owner. At the end of the day, I'm an insurance guy, but I'm a small business owner. I've got a, I've got a team of 17. I've got 17 team members. And something I personally had for years, I recommend to pretty much any small business owner out there, anyone that's got employees is employment practices, liability insurance. And that's saying, hey, if someone accuses sexual harassment or someone gets fired and they say, you fired me because I'm black, white, red, yellow, shaved head, goatee, black glasses, and I run a podcast. I'm looking at you, Jim. I'm trying to look, <laughs> right? I'm having a little fun here, trying to keep anybody who's still with us. Is there, they're trying to wake you up a little bit. Okay. But again, just another litigious area where you're like, hey, a business owner is a target. Don't kid yourself as a syndicator or an operator. You're still a business owner if you've got team members. That's an area I look at. And that's another, to me, that's a gap that I see. Like, very unlikely any of your passive investor syndicators don't have at the very, very bare minimum some kind of property coverage and some kind of general liability, right? At the bare minimum. How many of them that maybe have employees or team members or people work part-time or do landscaping or anything like that, that have an employment practices liability, that I still see a lot less. And so that's just a big one to me of that could be unfair firing. It could be wage an hour. It could be sexual harassment. It could be anything of an employee going and saying, I'm suing my employer because of X, whether it's legit or not. And then most of these apartment complexes, if we're talking about that or, or whatever the investment is, they're probably not going to have owned autos unless they have a property management company, then they do. So you mentioned hired and non-owned liability insurance. Can you explain what that is and why it's important? Yeah, that's just another one that's, and again, that's fairly common. A lot of people should have it, but again, I've seen so many things over the years and just maybe something got missed somewhere, some along the way, but basically hired and non-owned. I do not, let's take the non-owned because that's really the bigger portion of it. But basically says, hey, someone else is driving their own vehicle. It's not a vehicle that is owned by the business, but they're doing something on behalf of the business. Let's take me for example. Right? I own an insurance agency. We had a team meeting today. We had lunch. One of the team members goes to pick up lunch. They get into a car accident. It was their fault. They run a light. They hurt somebody. This did not happen. I'm just using this as the example. right? And then we get sued by some personal injury attorney saying, you know what? Cassie, yeah, she was driving her car, but she was really doing this on behalf of the business. And they pull in the business or they pull in whatever. Again, I've said for to, to people for years, Jim, this is a writer downer. Bad things happen. Everybody gets sued. Doesn't matter whether you had anything wrong or not. Doesn't matter you didn't. It doesn't matter what. So that non-owned liability, in essence, would protect the syndication. Again, in a scenario where maybe there's an assistant, maybe they're doing on something on behalf of the syndication. It could be as simple as they're running a bank deposit. Right? I get everybody now today, nobody does that anymore, right? It's remote deposit or they're scanning on their cell phones. But the idea that they're doing something on behalf of the syndication and there's some sort of accident, again, primarily this is going to be auto and they're in their own car, but then it comes back on the business or back on the syndication. So that normally should be part of a general liability policy. It's like an endorsement and rider on there. And that's something that most business owners and real estate investors and syndication should have. Okay. So you've given us a ton to think about as far as coverages and what we should be looking at. Is there anything else that we missed, common gaps that we should be thinking about in the insurance or have we covered all the important topics? I think these are the big ones. The only other one and I mentioned it in there too is cyber is a big exposure anymore. And you say, what's the risk or cyber? I think anytime you've got people taking payments at any level or cash transfers or transactions, there's, an, there's a cyber exposure, right? Again, I, I don't know the numbers or percentages, but it's still, an, it's a newer coverage. It's been around, I don't know. I've got into it pretty early on in the insurance side, but 
probably at least 10 years, but it's still one that I don't see as common. Okay, if we did a poll, all your syndications, everybody probably has general liability. How many of those syndications has cyber liability? Half, quarter, maybe less, I don't know. But that again would be one that I would say, while there could be a slip and fall, that could happen. The threat of getting hacked, that's really what cyber does. Cyber goes in to protect the business if the business is hacked, we've had a multiple clients this year alone, and they did have cyber, but literally contacted us and said, we're locked out of all of our systems. We can't get into our bank accounts. We can't get anything. We started getting emails saying, pay me $65,000 in Bitcoin and I'll unlock all your systems. That's called social engineering and cyber hacking or cyber terrorism, frankly. So those things happen. I think that's one that you could certainly say that I think could be important for a lot of businesses and syndications out there. And again, especially people, if it's like a habitational in nature and there's a lot of payments that could be flowing through and I've got people say, oh, no, that's on the point of sale system or it's everybody's always trying to say it's not on me. And again, my experience has been and speaking firsthand as an insurance guy is that if something serious happens, you very well could be pulled in. <laughs> That's just how it goes. And then you don't want to be trying to hang your hopes on they have insurance or I didn't read the fine print of the point of sale system contract saying that, oh, by the way, if something happens, it's actually on me and on that. So I think that'd probably be the last one. I think the biggest one, if we just wrap up and say takeaway, just ask, ask some of the questions of tell me about our insurance. Just as simple as that, like, what do we have? How are we protected? How are these assets and my money protected? I think those are very good, fair questions. That's fantastic. This is great stuff. Insurance is not the most exciting thing in the world. What When it goes wrong, you're in big trouble. So this is really important. And I'm glad we had this conversation. The, uh, the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? Yeah, so I listen to a ton. A big John Maxwell guy. I'm a big John Maxwell leadership guy. And he's got a Maxwell leadership podcast. Uh, that I really like. And I listen to that pretty consistently. Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes. And then finally, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So a couple things. You can certainly reach out. My cell phone is 727-385-5082. Happy to text, call. Again, 727-385-5082. You want to check us out online. You can even live chat with us. Our website is getstrategicins.com. So it's just G-E-T, get, and then strategic, I-N-S, short for insurance.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. This was really eye-opening. It's not something I've thought about. It should have been, and now it will be. So I thank you very much for that. And thanks for being on the podcast. Jim, I really enjoyed it. If I can help you or any of the guys on any of the left field, the family out, I'm certainly happy to be a resource and, and help out any way we can. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. See you, Jim. You too. Bye-bye. That was really eye-opening, talking to Doug. As a former insurance guy, I'm embarrassed to say I've never once thought about how my passive investments are insured, and that will not happen going forward. Insurance is not super exciting, but man, it can really affect the performance. If something happens, if there's a large claim, that affects the entire performance of the syndication, if, especially if it's not insured properly because then they're going to have to use money from operations to pay for their the part that's uninsured or underinsured. Super important to ask some questions, and we'll get down to it. 
about what questions I'm going to start asking. The other thing, you need periodic checkups, not only of the entire insurance program, but in today's times when inflation is going crazy, you need to make sure that the valuations are locked in. You talked about co-insurance and all that stuff. You got to make sure that the operator is buying enough insurance because right now with interest rates rising, they're probably trying to cut costs every which way and insurance is not the place to do it. So the question we need to start asking the operators is, how are we protected? How are you protecting my investment on the insurance side? Because we ask all the other questions about the pro forma and how you're doing this, how you're doing that. How many times have you asked about insurance? For me, it's none. It should not be none. (laughs) So here's the things I'm going to start asking. I'm going to start asking, do you have business income insurance? Because I want to make sure that if something happens, that the rent isn't coming in anymore because there's a fire and we're not getting any business income anymore, that the insurance company is going to take over and pay that so we can still run our operation. I'm going to start asking about umbrella. Do you have an umbrella and what are the limits? Because if it's a $20 million property, I want them to have two, three, four, five million million of umbrella insurance because if something happens, I want to make sure we are covered. I want to make sure the replacement cost and co-insurance, check those boxes, make sure that they are doing replacement cost and make sure that their co-insurance is adequate. I'm going to ask if they have any employees. Do they have workers' compensation for the property? Now, I'm sure they do for the operation of the syndicator. But for that property, for that LLC, if they have employees working there, they need to make sure that they have workers comp hired and non-owned. That's another thing. And that could be either at the level of the syndicator or the level of the property. But we need to ask that question as well. And then finally, cyber risk. I think that's an important one, as he said, handling money. So those are the questions I'm going to ask. It's about seven questions. We're going to add it to the deal analyzer that we have. We'll also add it to the sponsor screener that we have. Both of those are infielder tools, but both of those can help. I'm going to start asking sponsors in my initial conversation with them when I'm asking all of my due diligence questions. I'm going to say, hey, do you do this on insurance? Boom, boom. And then when they send me a deal, I'm going to double check and ask them again. And then probably if they do it for three or four deals and everything seems to check out, it's probably something I won't have to ask for that particular syndicator every time because I know that they're doing it. But I'm going to start asking as I get into new deals, the insurance question. I should have been doing it all along. I'm going to start doing it moving forward. I suggest you do the same. So I'm really thankful that we had Doug on the podcast to really help us figure out what are the questions we need to ask. And we're going to start asking them. So great podcast to really learn something and really we can put this into action immediately. So thank you to Doug. And uh, that's all we have for today. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 